Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Professor at the University of Copenhagen, Christian Thorborg. tuned in to episode 309 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm really, really excited to get on Christian Thorborg for today's episode. So Christian has been on my hit list for a long, long time. I've been pestering for a long time, which seems to be a common theme when I do these intros to the podcast, absolutely stalking people left, right and centre. However, I wanted to get Christian on because of his expertise when it comes to hamstring injuries and hamstring injury risk. So there's been a couple of, or probably more than a couple of episodes in the past that have discussed this topic, but I wanted to get Christian on because he is absolutely world-leading when it comes to hamstring injuries and hamstring injury risk. So in this episode, we discuss the structure of the hamstrings, we discuss uh, neuromuscular factors related to hamstring injury and performance, asymmetries, uh, assessments of risk, and everything in between. So a really, really interesting episode with Christian that I'm sure you'll really, really enjoy. And if you haven't checked out previous episodes of the podcast where I've spoken to guests on similar topics you can have a little look for david opar for ryan timmins josh ruddy and jack hickey who came on as a, a trio uh, a round table and also jack hickey on his own who discussed uh, hamstring injury risk at uh, great length as well so make sure you check them out however over to christian for this episode which i'm sure you'll love this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by perch Perch enables velocity-based training, no strings attached. Engineered at MIT, Perch uses small and mobile cameras to monitor and manage weight room performance without detracting from it. By passively collecting speed and power data, delivering it in real time to athletes and storing it for post-workout analysis, Perch enhances workouts, reduces injuries and saves time. Perch works with every level of organization, from the 2019 National Championship LSU football team to the NFL's New York Giants, military installations, high schools, and to a number of growing sports performance facilities and even individual garage gyms. Perch is portable, easy to install, and intuitive to use, making it ideal for every facility and every training goal. No more pre-workout setup, no more attachments to athletes and barbells, no more broken strings. Set Perch up once and optimize every rep. Reach out to Perch today and for exclusive deals and offers, tell them Rob sent you by going to perch.fit forward slash Pacey. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. 
AMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Christian Thorborg. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this morning, I am delighted to welcome Christian Thorborg. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you very much for coming on. Appreciate your time. I know it's a bit of a weird time at the minute. It's people working from home, working in the office. So I appreciate you giving up your time. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a bit of an intro into you, what you're doing currently and what you've done previously education-wise and whatnot. Yeah, so I'm a, currently I'm a professor at uh, Copenhagen University uh, in orthopedics, actually, <laughs> of all things. Uh, but my background is I'm a sports physiotherapist, and I trained from Copenhagen uh, and graduated in 1998, so more than 20 years ago. And then I worked uh, for 10 years as a clinician, as a sports physiotherapist, uh, during that time, I did my master's in sports physiotherapy in uh, Melbourne, actually. Um, you can't do that from Denmark. Uh, you can't specialize in that way. So I had to go somewhere else and, and went to Melbourne, which was a very, very good experience. Um, as I said, the, probably the first 10 years was, was mo- mostly clinical um, and mostly from a clinic. Uh, I, didn't, I, I haven't worked much in the, with teams. I, I have a background as playing football or soccer myself and I was getting a bit tired of sort of using all my weekends so when I finally stopped my <laughs> my half lousy career that, that I decided that I was gonna spend the weekend with the family uh, instead so uh, mainly from a clinical setting and also a clinical point of view um, and then sort of uh, when I become more and more sort of specialized I also had more and more questions and at some point I was challenged a little bit by uh, the professor where I work, Pierre Hulmik, to come and, and try to um, do some research with him. And that set off uh, my PhD, which is in the area of, of hip and groin problems, which, but this was more related to, to groin problems. But my other interest was hamstring injuries, and that was another focus we had at the research unit where I, where I currently work, which is, is the Sports Orthopedic Research Center in Copenhagen where I, together, I'm the research lead and the head of the department is Pehrumik, that some of you might know as well, professor also from Copenhagen University. And that's where I still am. Um, I still work a little bit also clinically, um, both at the, the department, but also uh, in private practice still, trying to, to keep up my clinical skills, um, probably in sort of one day a week at the moment, it's two, or two half days. And uh, I actually now, it, becomes more more specialized so it's more and more hip and groin and actually hamstring injuries that i see were you any good at football or not uh, you said half uh, mediocre 
No good. I, I was playing. I was playing sort of uh, just below professional level. So I was sort okay. of. I was getting paid, but not enough that you could live on it. Uh, so I had to find a different career path <laughs> at God. some point. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, and if you compare that level probably to Premier League or an, an English level, I would say that's a lot lower down as well. So, but I was I was enjoying it, and like many other uh, kids uh, growing up, I, I wanted to become a professional and play with the national team, and I, I wasn't that good. Gosh. What position did you play? So I, I played almost all the positions uh, except goalkeeper. <laughs> Moved around, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, sort of ended up at, at, at defensive midfield. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, who would be that? Ericsson? No. Uh, oh, probably. Not... So it's your. It's number six right now. So it's sort okay. of a holding midfield. Uh, no, okay. he would probably be an eight. I would guess. Yeah, be an eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Yeah. No. Who, who would it compare to? It's it's usually also the old the oldest midfielder. <laughs> yeah. So it'll, 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 it'll probably yeah exactly it'll probably be Ericsson in a few years, mate. Yes. <laughs> okay. Nice. Brilliant. So when did you get in touch with and get to work with the guys in Australia, um, the the hamstring group in Australia? Yeah. So that's basically I think. I met uh, David Opar and Anthony Shield um, at a conference, um, and basically was I was actually sitting in on their session. I think it was a football medicine conference in London, and and I think this in many ways I usually tell this story because we I, I looked in the abstract book and I could see some really interesting abstracts on hamstring uh, injuries, and it was, this was work in relation to the note board, but also in relation to some of the strength work and the, the, the muscle uh, work they've done uh, in relation to cross-sectional area and also in relation to when you load up uh, the hamstrings um, and if you're injured, how do the hamstrings activate during an exercise? Um, and so I was, I was looking at, at, at this program and I, I said to Pehulmik, uh, my colleague, I think we should go and see this one. That, that looks pretty interesting. And we come into this session, and you know, football medicine is a huge venue. There's, I think, more than two or three thousand people there, at least uh, now there is. And we come into this session, and there's like ten people in the room, uh, and <laughs> and and it was an excellent session. Matt Bourne was presenting, David was presenting, maybe also Ryan Simmons was presenting. Did an awesome job, and. You sit there and you you think this is quite novel, and and then you look to the right, uh, and of these ten people, uh, Professor Robar has snuck in as well. Okay. <laughs> so again, I think just some instinct tells you you look at when you're researching, you look for the abstracts, what's good, what's new, and and basically you're all there. And I think we both all both groups approached them, and we, I think both groups has gained an, an, an enormous. Not not just knowledge, but also I've been lucky enough to work together with these people, and, and it definitely has helped my understanding of 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 what we're doing and trying to achieve. I think what they, I think what was the, the gap was. I've always said that we, because we did the Nordic hamstring study, a big RCT many years ago now that was that came out in eleven, and. And I, at that point, I remember talking to, especially the physiologist and biomechanist, and I said, if just somebody would go in and try to understand the underpinning mechanism of why this works, because we really, it's really 
we really don't know, and it, it's actually a little bit counterintuitive why it works. And and then I think basically that's a lot what what they did, and they came in, and, and I think if also if not for them, I think they've made it hugely popular again to to have a different look at this because I think. And I, oh, I know for a fact that a lot of people have already sort of like in 2012, 13, almost buried the idea, even though our RCT was showed that this was very, very effective on preventing hamstring injuries. So, so, so why, 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 why was that, Christian? Why, why was that written off? Uh, it's, 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 I think it's, uh, that's difficult for me to say, but I think, again, I, I just think that this exercise was so counterintuitive in relation to if you're, Mindset is that it has to be functional, um, and exercises have to be functional and very specific to what you are trying to achieve on the pitch. This is anything but that. When you look at it at face value, I think people struggle with that, and I struggle with that. So I, I completely understand that. I mean, what changed my mind was when I saw the data, and the data just kept very constantly coming in, showing the same result. So uh, I mean, I I understand. The, the, the point of view. Uh, I think I don't understand that if you believe in science, I don't understand that, that you have to that you are not that you are completely fixed on that point of view. I think that's that's probably the main issue for me. Mm -hmm. One thing that came up with the chats with uh, Josh Ruddy, Ryan, and Jack Hickey when I had them guys on. Yeah, I was all part of the, the same group looking at looking at very similar things, and their concern of almost stating early on, yes, we do research in this area, but this isn't the only thing we believe in. Like, it's just our research area. And I know we spoke uh, before I hit record about a similar thing, and it's just not been pigeonholed, I guess. And this isn't, uh, this, although this is a research area of mine, I don't just believe in this and nothing else, which when you go on social media, people love to go, I'm this guy or I'm this guy, whereas in actual fact, it's... Um, it's, it's, it's everything. It's, it's, it's one, of, one of many things. I just wanted to put that over to you and see about your concern of being labelled as a Nordic guy versus a non-Nordic guy when that's just not the case. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like it's, I don't think we will ever get rid of that. But I think the world is probably much easier when you put it in black and white um, like course. that. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think we've been misunderstood a lot. I think one of the reasons... I'm on Twitter and, and I'll defend uh, the Nordic hamstring uh, at the moment or, or, and, and will keep posting on Twitter on it is, is mainly to, to try to provide balance. It's not that I, I'm not trying to persuade those people who don't believe in it, but I, it is for me to try and provide balance for the listening audience out there. Uh, and, and so that, uh, and of course, because I keep, providing probably the same point of view that that can be looked upon as a little bit as a, as a stubborn point of view as well. But I think it is important. And I think when I would, one of the first times I realized that we did have a problem was when I was asked to do a, I was asked to be a reviewer for a sort of a position piece and it was on hamstring injury selection. And the, what blew my mind was that the only exercise, there was probably 10 or 12 different exercises suggested, and the only exercise not in there, uh, would you believe, of any hamstring exercise for prevention of hamstring injuries was the, Nord, the Nordic hamstring exercise. And I 
I, I actually got hold of the editor saying this this is a huge problem. I mean, how can we? I mean, it's probably one of the best documented exercises, one-off exercises to prevent any injury. So if if this is not making its way through to uh, to the people trying to prevent injuries, I think we have there's a huge problem. Why do you think that it has become so polarized? Do you think? Do you think? And I'll just put some into you, Christian. Do you think people have an issue that the Nord board has come out of this as a commercial? Uh, so I think if you, if you, if you, if you, oh, maybe if you don't, if you, if you haven't followed the literature, I think some started following it when the Nord board came out, and then so of course you would think that these two are very closely linked. But that was the, I think that was the awesome part as well is was that this was just. An idea by David and Anthony uh, related to, I think, our research. But there was, I mean, we had no communication. As I said, I've never heard about these guys before uh, I met them in London at this conference. So for me, that was very innovative and a very good way to try and sort of just bring the research further. I think, I think there's one thing I would like to mention, which is very usually very misunderstood when you look at our study, which was a big RCT on almost 1,000 uh, football players from Denmark, soccer players, and uh, which was randomized into two groups. And what we actually looked was that we had a control group who would do their usual football training management, whatever you do in a football club, uh, from the highest level to sort of that level I played, so just below. Uh, and uh, and then the intervention group was the Nordic Hamstring Protocol, which had been shown from other groups to be very effective on increasing eccentric strength uh, in the knee flexors. And it also there was a, a study before us that was not, it was sort of a quasi-randomized, it was not a real randomized study where they looked at data from two different countries where they had a really dramatic effect. So at this point, we have we just have something that looks really effective, but we don't know how it's working. So our study was sort of trying to, can we actually confirm this finding? Um, so our, ours was a confirmatory study trying to, to uh, do it in a more rigorous RCT setting. So what a lot of people don't realize is that they would often criticize, but this is, a, it's, this is just one exercise. How could it ever be effective? Because we do at least one, two, three, or four different things. What this study was actually showing was that if you play regular football in, in a setting, including your strength and conditioning, including all the football training you do, if you then, on top of that, add the Nordic hamstring exercise protocol, and you compare it with not adding it, then you have something that is very, very simple. It takes very, very little time. It actually starts off the first week by two times five repetitions. That's all you do the first week. That is very, very effective. So when you say that it's just one exercise, you, you're completely forgetting the whole design of the study, which means that these players are full on playing and training football. And then you just add something a little extra, which is probably a lot extra in terms of the, the um, exercise stimuli, stimuli, but in compared to time-wise and compared to other things that you would like to do with all these football players, it's really uh, nothing at all. Yeah. And I think that, that that is one point that I think people keep forgetting when they say, oh, but how can one exercise work? 
because they're true. If, if this was just one exercise and we told one club, uh, this intervention group, now you can't play football, you can only do this exercise. I mean, first of all, it wouldn't be feasible. You wouldn't be able to do it, but it probably wouldn't work as well. Like it's, it's not, uh, I mean, <laughs> that's what's happening with the lockdown. Asking people not to play football is certainly doing nothing good for, for hamstring injuries, of course, because you, you have, you have no physiological stimuli in relation to sprinting and that's detrimental to these injuries. So I think that, that for me, that's a very important point that is usually often forgotten, I think. Mm -hmm. So we've got all this data, we've got all this research from, from you guys uh, and, and Dave and, and Anthony's groups. Why is there still people arguing against the use of Nordics when, if you like you say, we're all, whether you're a strength and conditioning coach or a sport scientist, they're all under the sport scientist banner. So people are scientists and the science says that it works. Why are people still questioning yeah. its, its, its implementation? So I think what we have to take very seriously is, of course, that, that there might be an implementation problem. Uh, and, uh, and definitely there, there are barriers towards implementing this. It's, I think there's not, we haven't done enough research or enough uh, sort of surveying what, why, what the barriers are. We've, we've done a little bit we've, and we were actually able to do this at, at, the, um, at the Champions League level um, where we were sort of asking uh, Champions League clubs whether they were actually doing the Nordic hamstring protocol. And there you could, you could definitely see that they were definitely not using it per protocol, so they were not using the entire 10 weeks. So you, you could argue that, uh, so I think there was about, I think it was around 10 or 11% of the clubs that would say they were using the full protocol. Um, but there were also clubs not using the exercise at all. So, I mean, I mean there, was, there's, there's some, there would be some uh, opinions out there saying this is probably a bad exercise entirely. Um, and then there would be clubs, and we couldn't, with our survey, we couldn't say exactly what, how they would then utilize it. But what, what we hear and when we speak to, to uh, different clubs, different levels, is that they are, of course, probably trying to modify it in some way that it fits their world better. Um, and this is probably, this is not probably, this is where we need, I think, to do more research. Because if people say, I'm just, I'm just going to change uh, the evidence or, or what actually shows to be effective according to the evidence, and, and, and we're not testing whether that's actually working, then I think we still have a problem. We might change it to something that's not working anymore. And this is also, I think, where some of the work done in Australia is, is, is very interesting because they've sort of gone a little bit into uh, dosage. Can we change the, the, the actual um, content and dosage of the program so we don't have to do a full 10-week program? So I think some especially at the highest level, we'll say oh, 10 weeks, that's not possible to fit in anywhere. Um, I'm, not, I'm not completely convinced about the argument. I think, I think one of the problems with that is that if you've never done it and then you have to start with 10 weeks somewhere, I think it's a problem. But I've seen clubs where they also at the highest level where they, where they slowly over time are actually able to build up uh, this kind of work and put it into their normal strength and conditioning uh, work. Um, and then, of course, they have to 
periodize this also in relation to the season. And there's some evidence, also emerging evidence, that it, it looks like the more consistent you can actually be with this. So can you even do it uh, during more than one season? It looks like it just gets better and better. So I think I, I would really love to see more clubs trying to be more intentional about trying to implement it in some way. It may still not be the full program, but you, and I will come back to this, I think there is some argument for for having um, a large volume and why, and also why we were success, successful with this volume when we started. Mm -hmm. We can discuss that further. Okay. Um, so, so one issue I think is 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 if you so one of the risk factors we've seen, especially from the Australian group, is the fascicle length. So if you have shorter fascicle length, you're you're at, at increased risk of getting a hamstring injury, um, and that is what we call a surrogate measure. So that means that's. It's, it's actually not an easy measure to get because it's it's very operator dependent and not a lot of people do it well. It's from what I've heard, so that's one issue. But even it's a lot easier. It's an easier measure in the way that you can you can you can do your protocol and then you can get a, a very quick assessment of how it actually affects your your fascicles. Um, so the the challenge with that or the problem with that is that is that a risk factor or a surrogate measure does not correlate 100% to to uh, injury prevention uh, so it it you have to be very careful when you when you then change your practice based on a surrogate measure or, or on a risk factor and this is also one of the reasons why risk factors are so poor at predicting um, individual uh, sort of who will get injured, who will not get injured. So it's that they they're sort of part of the bigger picture. They can explain some of the variance in in in, in risks that we see, but they're not they're not going to predict what's going to happen. And in the same way, you can say that just because you change fascicle length doesn't mean you're actually getting the adaptation you need. We don't actually know whether that's enough to 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 get a preventive uh, effect. So what are the risk factors, Christian? While we're on it, so the so the, the more, most consistent risk factors would be uh, age is one, and we can come back to that because it's a, it's 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 very specific in, in hamstring injuries. You get you get old very quickly <laughs> with hamstring <laughs> injuries. You you, you hit 10, 22, 23 in football or in soccer, and then and then you're actually on the brink of 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 increasing your risk because you're you're uh, you're in the old group um, and then the other one and then the other big one of course is previous history of hamstring injury um, and then I think eccentric strength is in there somewhere and also in relation to uh, quadriceps strength so there's there might be something about the ratio as well but the the, the evidence there is so mixed that it's very very difficult to to sort of say that eccentric strength alone or even like that that absolute parameter is 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 um is a is a good predictor or not even a predictor risk factor it, it comes out in some studies and not in other studies so again from that point of view you could say so i don't think it's necessarily the point that you are the strongest one eccentrically in your group but i think doing eccentric strength strength training would would more or less always be a good idea for the whole group one thing that I found was, I think it was Ryan's paper, and there was, I think it, it might have been soccer, I can't, I can't think of it now, but gave a, um, a, a figure, I think it was 245, 250 newtons, um, and above that, you're, sorry, 
below that, your risk of hamstring injury um, significantly increased. And I know, and this is one thing that I spoke with Josh and Ryan when they, they came on, was this kind of jumping on a threshold and going, okay, that's my number. Like Anything above that, I'm good. Anything below that is not good because in Ryan's population, that's what was found. Yeah. I guess that can be an issue when people see something in a paper and just go, boom, I'm going to use that and I'm going to run with it. Is that yeah. something that you have found as well, that people looking for that kind of golden number? Yeah, yeah, no, you know, for sure, and I, I, you can you can understand that reasoning. I oh. mean, uh, and especially this is, I think, where risk factor papers are a little bit uh, can be a little bit uh, risky <laughs> to follow <laughs> because uh, because you, I mean, first of all, you had to have all these variants within your group of players, but second of all, it. This is something you can change really, really quickly, and that's so. Both physical length and eccentric strength, I think. I mean, within two or three weeks, you can actually change that, um, and that would be really awesome if I could also ch- change the, the risk of getting a hamstring injury in two to three weeks. And and this is probably where I'm more skeptical, and uh, where our work um, is. There's not a lot of data here, so this is also, and I'm driving an opinion now, but based on our work and when you look into our data, you can see that, so for the first 10 weeks when they, they do the actual protocol, um, we have, if I remember correctly, we have nine and 12 injuries in, in, in the two groups. And if I remember correctly, I think we have 12 injuries in the intervention group. So, and, and, after the 10-week period, so for the rest of, of, the, of the season, actually, we only see three more injuries in the, in the intervention group. So there, there is some kind of adaptation going on through the first 10 weeks. Unfortunately, we don't have data. To, I, we, we didn't put down the date, so we don't know whether it happened in the first three or four weeks. Or My guess is it was spread out in those 10 weeks. But what is really interesting is that when the adaptation kicks in, it looks like it's a very, very um, effective vaccine that you've exposed your hamstrings to. And this is also where I think that even going back to some of the old ideas on, on, on giving eccentric work to your hamstring was all also very much based on this is Brockett's work uh, back in uh, back in 2000, early 2000. They were very much looking on giving one bout of eccentric exercise. And we know that that's, I mean, that's unaccustomed exercise that makes you very sore. But the idea that that also shifts the curve a little bit and makes you, uh, on the descending limb, makes you eccentrically stronger uh, straight away, I think is, I, I'm, I have difficulties with grasping that as, as the, the um, effective part of the program. And the same with, with fascicle length, especially when you see that you can actually, which is, I think, quite consistent, it seems that you can change this in two weeks. So I have to ask some of our physiologists here in Copenhagen and in Denmark, is it, what, what do you think, is, is that a real physiological response? And, and, and I think no one knows at the moment. Just, I mean, Pierre Agard, which is a very good physiolo- uh, phys- physiologist as well, saying that it could also be that you're basically stretching uh, the fascicles uh, okay. uh, with this kind of approach and they're maybe sort of aligning them a little bit or... I mean, but but this is something we don't know. And and again, I'm not saying it's it's not useful, but again, maybe that's not 
enough. That maybe we need more than that. So, and if probably, so the next question should probably be, what is that? What is it that we need? Uh, I think that we need some of some of the some of the things the adaptations we see with strength training. I, I think there's certainly there is a um, a structural component of this, which is very important. So I think maybe changing uh, cross-sectional area could be important. Uh, I definitely think uh, fascicle length does play a role. But we also we know that the injury occurs at the musculotendinous junction, and we also know that that this is huge uh, forces, huge stress occur in this area, and it would it would make a lot of sense that if you can that if exercising or longer time is probably it takes longer time to address the myotonous junction because it's made out, uh, out of collagen so that i think that that's probably important and we have some work coming out of copenhagen on that um, where it seems that you have a, a collagen response as well but this, this is very very early days and it's very difficult to say whether that's actually particular at the junction and where the injury occurs but i would imagine that you need a structural adaptation going beyond just um, fascicle length. That, that would be my guess anyway. Where do you stand on asymmetries? Because again, it's a number, it's a it's something that's easy relatable. Um, yeah. And so, you may jump on it. Yeah. yeah. So asymmetries and probably also ratios are have this inherent problems with measurement error because you usually because now you, you're actually using two measures and combining them so usually they, you, you get much more measurement area so it, it's a, it's a much more difficult uh, measure to use and also usually you just get a lot more variance um, I'm not it's not irrelevant it's it's there's some good study also showing um, on people running sprinting that there are that could be asymmetries and asymmetries can be a problem um, so I think, and especially, especially probably in a, in a in a task or in a something like sprinting, I think which should be quite symmetrical. It's probably not one hundred percent symmetrical, but it it probably should have contributions equally equal contributions from both legs. I think it, it could be relevant. Whether you can whether you can measure that <laughs> in a in a in a strength device like the Nord board or even isokinetically, I th that's probably that's probably where I'm more skeptical. And in the Nord board, I think it's even more problematic because you sort of you you're if you have a weak leg, the, the weak leg would probably decide a little bit how far you go. Um, it's very difficult to sort of push very differently. I would argue uh, with one leg versus the other when you're testing. In some ways, are testing two legs at the same time. Okay. So, so I would, I would, I'm, I'm not a big, on the Nord board, I'm much, I'm a much bigger fan on the absolute value and also when you normalize that. And I think it's actually amazing that because it has a lot of pitfalls as well that I think it was really cool when they showed it the first time that even without normalizing this, it actually showed up as quite a significant risk factor. So, some, something very simple actually added quite a lot of value in my opinion so why is it so important to take body weight into account when you're looking at the overall value oh basically you just have to be careful to to i think um 
to compare uh, pears and uh, what do you call it, orange and apples? So yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think you you have to be careful when. So so one thing we would like to normalize is usually, of course, uh, their body weight or or you can say muscle mass or whatever. So how strong are you per? Per, per unit and um, the other thing is also definitely lever on this one because you're even your the length of your upper body and your legs might have a, have a big influence and that is not accounted for either and then there are some good studies i think it's from martin bushites also showing that this can affect the measurements quite a lot um so so definitely you have to be critical of that um We've normalized to, to to body weight as well. We, we haven't some of the studies we've seen. We, we see quite similar figures when we normalize and don't normalize. Um, so I think it's it's still quite a good raw measure of somebody's ability to to break essentially with their uh, with their hamstrings. Is there anything out there around limb length? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't. I can't remember if if Martin's group also looked at that. Uh, probably worth checking out what they did. I can't remember, but they, they certainly had some valid points around that. So we're just going to take a very, very quick break in the chat with Christian. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we'll discuss more around the rehabilitation of hamstring injuries, optimizing function post hamstring injury, and reasons for those who uh, seem to get persistent hamstring injuries. So really interesting part two coming up with Christian. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out, or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc. Have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram, because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. So for, for those in professional sport with fixtures and the congestion that we, we know is there, what would you recommend in terms of assessing risk for hamstring injuries? I know it, it may be just a conclusion of or a summary of what we've just said, but and in terms of implementing that into a 
maybe one of your, the, the clubs that you tested initially, when the, one of the football clubs, what would you recommend to them guys to get a bit of a better picture of, of risk of hamstring injury? So I think the, the, the most simple approach, um, I mean, and a bit, again, it depends. If you know your squad, if you know your players, if you've been in the club for a long time, I think you know the profiles, not even of just, I mean, even of your squad, you know your profile, but also probably on individual level because you know which players usually carry these problems. So they would always be at risk. Um, and you really have to, I think you, you, have, you need extra arguments with them um, to go into eccentric strengthening and that can even be difficult as well but I think that the um, from a strength testing point of view I, I and even if you have a note board in the club I wouldn't rely on it as I wouldn't rely on that number I would I would be much more I would focus much more on implementing what we know works in prevention and then maybe use the noteboard as a sort of a measure for also checking whether they are actually getting stronger for motivating them, um, stuff like that. Uh, it's it's not it's not the number that would dictate if I'm going to do prevention or not. I mean, uh, on the on the noteboard anyway. Uh, I mean that's that's the general uh, preventative effects that we've seen that that would make me say I think we we could we could implement something here that could have could affect the, the whole squad. So has the number gone up? Have we got better rather than what is the actual number? So uh, I'm, I'm not the right person to okay. answer that. I think yeah. I think if you look, if you just look at the numbers and if you look in the Champions League, uh, you can see that that there's been some argument that the, the numbers are not changing. Um, uh, so the, the, there's lots of arguments now if the numbers are changing or not. Um, Again, it's it's a very difficult comparison because the comparison goes back 20 years and the game has changed a lot. So, I mean, speed and sprinting is is is, is and 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 repetitive sprinting is is more important than ever. Uh, so even you could you would argue that or you could argue that the load on the hamstrings is, is, is a lot bigger than it, it usually than it was even when I played. So I think it's not it's not a fair comparison, but. Um, I think our studies and all studies that implement Nordic hamstring shows that it's effective. So that's not that's so so and th this is why you have to be very careful on on sort of also in your own club or at club level to say because the numbers are the same, this is not effective. There's so many other factors that we, we we're not controlling, yeah. and basically that's why we did the survey in the Champions League because the argument came out from the Champions League data was that nothing has changed. Therefore, uh, Nordics or whatever we do is not working. That's a very, very, um, uh, I would say, dangerous conclusion because it, it, you're not taking uh, the environment or culture or whatever has changed in the game into account at all. Did you ever ha have hamstring injuries as a player? I, I did, and I, I was, I was labelled... Um, you can't get a hamstring injury because you're not very fast. That was the, <laughs> you've got to be fast to get a hamstring I, injury. That I, I was would, the one would, that came back to me. I would be in the same category. I got a really, really nasty one. Uh, late in my career, uh, when I was slower than ever, and I was not a fast player either. Uh, but this, I think this, is a, this is a good point because, and I think that's the other point you need to address in your team. And you can always argue... Uh, why not ju then just apply it to the older players or 
but what I see and often see when I see players or they come or I do consultancy is it's, it's very, very difficult if the culture was not there in the first place uh, to do eccentric work uh, or even do strength training. It's almost impossible to get a 28-year-old player to, to get into it. If he's never done it uh, and he's, he thinks he's been successful without it to this point, even with a, with a hamstring injury, it's, that could be mission impossible. So this is also why I think consistency is probably one of the most important things in your club. And I've seen clubs do this really, really well, where they have a plan and it doesn't have to be necessarily the full Nordic protocol, but they do have something they do consistently year in, year out. And there's a very, very important educational aspect of that is that players from a very young age, because you could also argue that the young players are not that much at risk, so why should they do it? But if they know from even 14, 15 years old, they get to know this kind of exercise, know that strength training is important and it's part of their routine, it's part of the gym work they do, it's much, much easier to to tweak that a little bit later on in their career as is if they now have to sort of do something they've never done before. I've had numerous players who just say, I'm not I'm not doing strength training. And that's not that's not almost part of who I am. And then it's I mean, it's 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 mission impossible. So I think there's other reasons than just trying to protect them. If you have I think older players you definitely need to consider if they get hamstring injuries, uh this is something you have to take very, very seriously. Um, and, and I mean, you always have to take it. And the serious injury, you have to take very, very seriously. I think this hamstring injuries can ruin uh, players' careers. I think for a slow player like you and me, it's probably not as detrimental. I think for me, it, was, it took me a long time to get over. I had, I had a nasty one, but it was not, I mean, if I'd been a very fast player, I think it would it would have been a much bigger problem for me. And that's the other thing is when you work with a sprinter, it's that's so interesting because a sprinter would tell you all day long if they're not up, if their performance is not there. I mean, they can tell you that they're and they can even feel it in the sprint. So for a, for a sprinter, they and they can see it on the sprinting times, all the all the performance stuff they did, it just comes up there. So usually they they take a lot longer because they don't they 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 feel the performance deficit straight away or they can see it in in the measures they do. Whereas in football you can hide like in the defensive midfield where we were playing in practice you can it's very very easy to hide with a hamstring injury. If you play uh, even small sided games as well, it's 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 usually it's you can return very quickly and you can you can hide that injury and play really well. The problem is when you then play on Sunday and you come in and the coach puts you on the on the on the wing or right back exactly right back and you have to sprint back and forth and then you're in trouble. Mm. When you mentioned age and the fact that over 22, 23, you're in the old group, yeah, um, is that is that based on just general deterioration of? Um, yeah, sectional area. What what is it? Yeah, that, that's again one of the questions that would okay. be really interesting to dig into. We we just published recently a study from uh, in a in a collaboration with uh, with some Catalonian researchers in Spain. Where, and again, this was sub-elite level. Uh, so again, they 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 have other issues, especially, and they get a lot older. Uh, a lot of the players as well. But the level is pretty high in Spain, even at the 
the next level. That would be uh, that would be Danish level still. Um, <laughs> and and but what we saw there was actually that age was really related to your eccentric strength as well. So it actually diminished uh, almost like a, I think it was around one percent uh, in relation to. Uh, one year older you get, uh, and we had a, an age range from 16 to almost 40 years old. So we had a big range, which was very interesting. So there might be something which is physiological, something happening to your structure. Whether that, I think that would be very early if that all already happens at at, at 22 or 21. Um, so there might be other issues at stake there, and again, would be very interesting to look into. I. I keep saying my my I have a feeling that in in I mean in football or soccer or whatever these football codes are running sports I I think that's probably I mean where you peak from a performance perspective if you have to do a lot of repetitive fast running usually that's done really well by your 21 year old 22 year old 23 year old player and usually that's also that time where they have become good enough, experienced enough to make the team. Uh, so, and and you you also see teams who want to play really really aggressively uh, have a lot of sort of high intense running. They 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 need younger players in the squad to, to sort of maintain that kind of uh, tactics. And so my guess would be that that also is a massive load on your hamstrings. Uh, just uh, the, so not only how football have developed, but also your role as a, in the team at that age could could be massive. Um, but something we have no data on. We've mm-hmm. we've looked. We have some interesting data coming out. Uh, I'm not gonna steal his thunder, but Lesse is high, who's, who's done a lot of work at the highest level. But I think that the, the short story is that it it looks like. Like why, where your quadriceps strength just keeps continuing when you when you uh, when you get older as a player, your your hamstring sort of doesn't when when you become when you turn into a senior player it seems to actually just um, flatline a little bit. So okay. that could be an interesting one uh, because it might be at that age as well. So again, it might be that you have to be very aware of the fact that not only are, are you sort of putting a lot of load of these players, maybe just football training in itself is also not very hamstring uh, stimulating. Um, we work with hamstring and groin. I usually say that football and, and, and soccer can be very hard on, on, on your groin and your adductors and your hamstrings, but it's usually to the point where you're probably beating these structures a little bit, probably, and that, and that usually also can cause some weakness if you're really hard on structures, you, you usually see uh, sort of uh, sub-conditions where you actually decrease your, your strength levels a little bit. So that could also ex- maybe be an explanation why these young players, if they've been worked really hard, might have some some sub-conditions or about sub-states where they're actually decreasing their hamstring capacity. So it might be very important. And again, th- this is where measuring them could be really relevant. Are they dropping off during the, the season? This this refers back to Martin Volin's work. He's done that both on hamstrings. He's from Australia, worked at the academy, uh, the AIS, and actually shown that in academy level, you can implement these um, 
strength measures and, and you use it for early detection of players who are actually dropping off in eccentric hamstring strength, for instance. Uh, or that, I think that was isometric, but still just the idea that you're testing hamstring capacity. Um, so I think that could be hugely important. And uh, maybe even screening for that is more important than establishing that one-off number that you were talking about. And, okay. and, and also being being willing to 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 um, to sort of imp, uh, sort of manage players who are not necessarily injured but show signs of early hamstring weakness, hamstring injury, hamstring soreness, uh, tightness is another one. You often people uh, players uh, athletes often complain of tightness. Maybe that's something you need to consider uh, because it could be an early indication of being overworked. So you, so. Me- you mentioned isometrics there, Christian. Where, yeah. where do where do they fit in this whole in this whole picture? So in Martin's study, I was I was not referring to it correctly. So in Martin's study, I think for testing, sometimes again, it's just I think isometrics can sometimes be more acceptable in, in that setting. But but in relation to hamstring injuries, I would actually prefer an eccentric measure. It's more stressful. I think you would pick up. A deficit more easily, but uh, he he had them lengthened over the hip, uh, which again, so he brought the hamstring into more length and in a, in a in a position where he was also able to actually pick up some of these deficits in a very, I would say, in a position where you're not inducing any delayed onset muscle soreness as well. So so from that perspective, it was a good test, I think. But I think probably eccentric testing, I would guess it's a little bit more sensitive also to when you start to drop off a little bit. Okay. So it could be the long ball as well. Yeah. Okay. So a couple more things just before I let you go. Yeah. Optimizing function post hamstring injury. Obviously, the idea yeah. they don't, but if they do, how can we work with them to, to optimize that to, to prevent a re-injury? Yeah, so... Um, Again, I think so. This is what is, I think, huge discussions, disagreements on Twitter is always. And whenever there's a study, people will say, oh, but that, that's, that doesn't fit my practice or bias or whatever. And I think, and I, and I agree, because that, so the, so the issue is often that I think one of the biggest, when, when the disagreements are the biggest, it's when you have a club setting and you have a, like a clinical setting, which is where I work. So if you're in a club and you have somebody coming back from injury with a hamstring injury, I would say this is very, very difficult uh, to manage, actually, and to predict what's going to happen. And I think most people working in a club would agree with me that they are. it's one of those things where they sometimes just close their eyes and pray, pray and hope that they, this goes well. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons for that is because – because in clubs and in football, we're pushing the envelope all the time. So, and this is also, I think, actually, a lot of work seems to suggest that, that, that yeah, everyone says that a hamstring injury takes three weeks, and sometimes you can even do it faster than that. But I think there's a lot of hamstring injuries that are not biologically healed at that point. Still, we are, we are pushing them out there. And especially in football, they will also, a lot of them will, will manage and won't re-injure. So there's there's a good there's a good old paper from John Orchard where he's talking about sort of risk reward ratios and saying, well even if we if we do push them out a little bit early, um, 
the re-injury rate is such and such that I'm, I'm willing to take a few re-injuries because if I have to sort of completely uh, diminish the risk, then I have to wait so long that I just there's no player availability for the team. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's a really really valid point, especially from a from a team perspective. The problem though is is that then it becomes a little bit more sort of it's very very difficult to to know when you have that hamstring injury that you probably should have hold on to a little bit longer. In the clinic, I can hold on to them usually for as long as I can, and I do. Um, I usually tell tell them that the longer we can hold on to you, the better. Um, and so unless they come, and they usually don't come to me if they if they don't have a big problem. Usually it's a re re injury sometimes. So I they they they, they haven't managed in the club, so, and then I get them. Um, so it's a different situation. They're not in a rush. They, now they just want to get rid of the problem, really. Um, so I think it's not fair on clubs to just say you're you're doing a real bad job because their situation is 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 completely different. On the other hand, I think this also contributes to the fact that we're not really changing uh, the hamstring injury or the re-injury um, occurrence as well, or the the percentages even, because we are we are pushing the envelope. Um, I think it was Arsene Wenger who said nothing has happened in hamstring injury treatment because it still takes three weeks <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> and it was the same in the 50s, and it's, it's the same now. And in some ways, he's right. But I also think that nothing has changed in the way that we still try to, to push them out there uh, when they're not actually probably completely healed and so that sometimes it won't it won't work um, so what's interesting if I may go back to our the, the big RCT with it was that and I, I think the, again this is a point to uh, why the or proof I think of that people don't heal completely and we know that from MRR we know it from from testing as well is that usually there's a deficit that can stay there for a long time even after they've returned as well but also when we did so the Nordic hamstring injury prevention protocol was really really effective for those with a history of re uh, of, of, of a previous history of hamstring injury in the previous season so basically 85% of those doing the Nordic, I mean, we could reduce the risk of 85% in those. So that was massive. It was uh, even better than just preventing it overall. And that to me suggests that even if you target those players in the season after they had their previous injury, you're probably still in some ways rehabilitating them. So even though they came into a preventive study, you're probably still fixing some of these structural and and also neuromuscular deficits that are still there would be my guess. And the, the second point I have to back that up with is was again this Spanish study, which was from Jordi Vicens from from Catalonia. Is that when again, if we looked at those who had in the same season, uh, but the season, so we get with here we did uh, the Nordboard testing in the preseason, but when we looked at those who had an injury for more than three weeks in the in the previous season. They were the one who were weak in the in the Nord board. Yeah. So they were again, I think it was plus 10, 12, 13% weaker than the rest. So if you just looked at previous history or not, we couldn't see a big difference. But if you looked at those who had an injury for more than three weeks, and, and I think that more than three weeks to me is suggesting that's sort of a again a, a little bit of a surrogate measure of a, a more severe injury. That's why they they stay out of the game. They're not able to come back. So there would be some with a much more severe injury that that would still carry this deficit 
in the beginning of the new season. So again, a very simple way to screen your players is also to ask them not just about did you have a hamstring injury in the, in the previous season, also for how long did it actually keep you out. I think those who've been out for a long time, you really have to make sure that they have ongoing management, even when they say they're fine. Cool. So I would I would say that it's definitely not a three week injury. It's okay. you're looking more that a something that you, especially for those severe ones, and you're probably looking at something you need to address for for the next season and keep addressing. Uh, and I I've had one one of those injuries, so I've I've, I've biased. It took me I think so. One thing was how long did it take to return? I don't know if you how yours was, but one thing was it took a long time to return. But then after I was returned, you, I mean, I was a physio at the time, so I was probably too aware of, too aware of my injury as well. But I could feel that they, this was not, I was not feeling normal even when I was sprinting. If I had the long sprint, I could still feel that it just felt different. I was apprehensive, which also have been shown in, in a few hamstring studies that apprehension is something you have to look out for, even in testing, but I think also in running. So ask your players about, if they're feeling a little bit apprehensive, be very careful if, if, if they come up with that because that I think that's your hamstring telling you this is this is where I would go. If you push me over this line, then then I'll I, probably go again. And then try to tell that to a football. That's very different. I, I think they'll look at you and say, what the, what are you on about? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> My hamstrings can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> so, Christina, I said I'd keep you under an hour, so I'll try my best to do that. But what 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 new research is coming out from your group what interests are taking you forward and then where can people get access to your work that we've spoken about yeah so i think definitely what we are a lot have focused a lot on would not talk so much about today is definitely now we're we've gone a little bit more into the performance stuff and i can do that very shortly so again that's Lasse and uh, isai and also casper Comis from our department they've they've done two rcts a pilot one but also a larger rct where they actually so the aim was actually to look at whether nordics because they had a they had a really bad rep uh, so are they actually detrimental also for for hamstring are they actually increasing the risk of getting an injury uh, can you get injured during uh, this kind of training or not necessarily during the exercise but in the period that you're doing it so we were actually, uh, and also some said they decrease your performance. So maybe it doesn't increase your injury rate, but they uh, at least they decrease your performance. So we looked a lot on performance. And this was one of those moments where in our heads, at least in my head, I was completely biased towards the long sprint as well. I thought if this changes anything in performance, it should be, should show up on the 30 meter sprint maybe. And we, what we saw in the pilot study by Casper was def was the opposite. Was very very looked very effective on on the five meter and the ten meter sprint, and uh, which was a surprise to us in the beginning. So again, we've looked further into this and uh, tried also so very looking very much into what they're doing in France. Uh, JB Morin's work on acceleration. Uh, and uh, horizontal and vertical forces and stuff like that. And what it looks to from our side anyway is that it looks as if Nordic hamstring or that kind of a stimuli, which is that aggressive on the hamstring eccentrically, looks to have a very good 
response in relation in relation to um, uh, rate of force development. Uh, and uh, so there's some things that's something we're working on at the moment that will come out shortly. We're we're in process with that. Uh, so some of the performance um, explanations could be because again you're doing an exercise that you would argue that that looks a bit slow in relation to sprinting, but actually the the muscle activation is very very fast and the so the RFD actually seems to to go up. Uh, with, with this kind of exercise, we can see that also when we when we use EMG, uh, EMG, sorry, um, and we can see that over time also rate of force development increases in those who do Nordics. So, so I think that's this is very interesting for us also to try and understand. We we had we had no idea that this would be so effective on the on the short sprints, uh, at least at the level sub elite level where we have, we have used it. Whether that is as easy at the professional level, I'm not sure. I think that's probably not true, but at least we can say it doesn't look to be hampering um, performance uh, from what we can see. So so this is something where we're going. I would love to look more into dosage, and, uh, and, and I think I would much rather if we could do a trial where, we, where we're implementing a dosage that that uh, elite would also consider to be feasible. I think that would be interesting. The difficult part was that in my world, you have to um, put that up against the gold standard and the gold standard is 10, a 10 week protocol. So even that might be difficult to get the elite to do the, the gold standard. Um, so again, we might have to drop to the sub elite level, but I would like to see if we can get. And then the other challenge in research is if you want to show that something is just of, of a similar effect, um, what we call equivalence, um, it's you need a lot of participants. So even though a lot of studies claim this was just as effective, usually what they're showing is no difference and that one is not superior than the other. So this is one of the challenges. But I would love to go into dosage and 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 on the, on the numbers of injuries, not just whether it actually affects a surrogate measure. So we will see if somebody's up for it. I'm, I'm happy to contribute. Everyone says that's up to us to do. This can only be done in Scandinavia. They say I think I'm not sure. I, I don't understand that argument. I think lots of nice RCTs are done in, in in many places in the world. So so why not? Absolutely. And wh where can people get your work, Christian? And I know you're quite active on Twitter, putting yeah. things out and having so discussions my, and whatnot. Yeah, my Twitter profile definitely. Uh, I'm on ResearchGate. Uh, we're trying to. All the open access stuff should be on there, um, and yeah, so that's probably the two main sources I would say. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well, but yeah, probably uh, ResearchGate and Twitter. I can we can put the, of the addresses for that somewhere. Um, of course, yeah, absolutely. I'll make sure that happens. Yeah, fantastic. Thank, well, thank you very, very much. much. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. No, 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 no. Thank you very much for giving it me time. I know it's, uh, I've been pestering you for a while, so thank you yeah. for <laughs> yeah, making yeah. time in the diary. So yeah, I appreciate yeah, yeah. it. Been talking Thanks, and <laughs> Yes, no, no, no. Don't worry about that. You're a busy man. Uh, thank, thank you very, very much. much. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to episode 309 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Christian. Firstly, as always, big thanks to guest Christian for coming on, giving up his time in a very busy schedule despite the strange circumstances but also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, 
Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs and Perch for sponsoring this episode today. So whether you're interested in force plates, inertial sensors, gym equipment, athlete management systems or velocity based training, these are the guys these are the guys to go to when it comes to any of them categories of sports technology and hardware. So thank you to them guys for their constant support. It could not run the current form without these guys. So I really appreciate their support. So thank you to you for tuning in and I will chat to you next week.